What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. Today, we are very fortunate to be talking with Dr. Michael Bishop, otherwise known as the Berserker Blothar from the band Guar. Now, this is a very special week for Guar because it is the 30th anniversary of their classic album, Scum Dogs of the Universe. To celebrate, Guar has announced the Scum Dogs XXX live streaming concert event presented by Liquid Death and Metal Injection. Now, many people know that Guar's music, lyrics, and stage show are all outrageous and provocative. Their objective is to shock us. But that shock is a manifestation of Guar's more subtle confrontation about humanity and the state of the world. Now, many people connect with Guar and other bands, whether from hardcore punk, heavy metal, hip-hop, or other genres, specifically because they identify with the confrontation. They want to think about who they are and what they think about the world and where they fit in society. In fact, many of us identify ourselves specifically based on our favorite music. And so during this conversation, I wanted to talk with Michael about his research and teaching that focuses on that very topic, musical identity. Now at Hardcore Humanism, our goal is to help you discover your life's purpose and work hard to achieve it. And for many of us, our purpose in life is driven by our musical identity. We want to listen to the music that inspires us, that lights us up. And sometimes it ends there. We feel good that there's music out there that we dig. Sometimes it goes a little further, and we find purpose in supporting bands that we love and connecting with others that share our interest. Then for some people, like Michael, our musical identity becomes part of our purpose through our creativity and maybe our profession. So let's hear what Michael has to say. Can you please talk a little bit about your work on the concept of musical identity? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I did a lot of research on some of the writing and musicology broadly about about music and how people use music to articulate or form identities or how music reflects identity and uh, identity being just sort of a sense and a knowledge of, of who and what you are, right? And I did that, most of that work was done through the frame of ethnography and research that was really heavily influenced by a scholar named Michelle Kisliak from the University of Virginia, who uh, was a performance studies, she's a performance studies uh, professor. And she has this concept of socio-aesthetic autobiography, right? And using that framework, I sort of applied that to a study of regional identity in music and how, you know, using her framework, it's, uh, it's challenging, but, it, you know, you, you're trying to sort of balance between, on one hand, feeling like you uh, are talking too much about yourself, <laughs> but, but you want to, like, when you're studying an object, you have an object of study right? Keeping yourself in the picture. Scholars a lot of times call this like reflexivity. Musical identity is sort of a broader concept, right? And it's the, the notion that people use music, like I mentioned earlier, to, to both articulate or and even to define themselves, right? And the work came a lot out of, uh, I was inspired to do it from work I did as an undergrad, uh, which was ethnographic work, 
when I had spoken to people who were into punk rock and they all had what, what sounded a lot like these sort of conversion narratives, right? Like, and they were all very similar as conversion narratives often are, right? They, they follow this kind of pattern. So it became clear to me that this is sort of one of the stories that people tell about themselves, right? It is their relationship to music and how that, that relationship is formed during their formative years or, or during, uh, you know, but, but at some point people oftentimes, not everybody, but certainly the people that are involved in punk rock, this, is, this seems like a very common thing. There's a moment or even a series of sort of points, you know, moments in their lives when they associate themselves with this music and when they realize what it means for them, right? And those are very powerful, emotional life-changing moments for people. And uh, there hasn't been a lot of work done on that. And, and I, you know, I mean, eventually I'd like to do more work on it because it was kind of the most enjoyable part of that research for me was, was hearing about it. it. Really, the dissertation, like a lot of dissertations, it's kind of an exercise to put you in a position to do more work, right? And, uh, you know, so eventually I'd like to sort of wrap that thing up into a chapter that's, that's, uh, at the, that I can then kind of use the approach to actually do the study, <laughs> do the work, right, of listening to other people talk about their sort of narratives with music, because uh, it's very interesting to me. And it's not only in punk rock. And interestingly enough, people that are in punk rock, a lot of times they have later moments when they sort of realize, oh, well, you know what? Country music really articulates this for me, or something else articulates this for me. And their sense of self it's an interesting question. It's like, you know, is the music doing that for them? Uh, are they recognizing something in the music? Do they change themselves to match it? Are their selves changing? And they simply start recognizing more of themselves in these other types of music. So that's the kind of, that's a very long answer to your question. Uh, but you uh, know, I'm an academic, so what can I say? <laughs> can you talk about, for you, when was that, was it a conversion narrative or was it a conversion moment? Whatever that was, that can we talk a little bit about what that was for you? And if it was oh, yeah. rock, for me, it's a moment that has a, a kind of narrative, and I, and I'm borrowing that concept from the conversion narrative. And this is this is outside of of Kislyak's work. This is my my stuff, you know. But it's borrowing that concept from uh, really from religious conversion narratives, right? Where where people sort of realize in a moment what and who they are. And it culminates in a point, right? In an instant in time, or like I said, more than one, but it's always accompanied by this sort of narrative that, that sets up, you know, the surrounding story. And for me, in that case, you know, I had always been very influenced by music and, and my family, you know, I grew up performing music in, in church and, uh, that was really you know, my exposure to music, mostly through singing. And I had a, had a lot of people in my family that played music and in my extended family that played music. So I was drawn to music anyway. And I had a, a cousin who was a musician as well. You know, when you're kids, I mean, I spent a lot of time with my cousins. I, I, don't, I don't know if kids do that anymore, but back then we did. <laughs> You know, so we we were often together, and and I remember that on the news recently there there had been, and this is in the mid seventies, 
there was a story, uh, and it was, well, I'll never forget, it was Walter Cronkite. And he's talking about how, you know, look at these images of punk rock, you know, the latest, the latest youth trend in, in Great Britain, you know, safety pins through the cheeks and this awful band called the Sex Pistols. And who is it, uh, you know, are, are these the kinds of things that we can expect on American shores, right? You know, and, and it was kind of posed as a threat, like, you know, it was a very threatening thing, like, you know, we hope this doesn't happen here. What I noticed was that, I don't know, but I, I was obsessed because I knew it was probably something dirty, but I was even too young to really figure out what a sex pistol was, right? Like, it just sounded like, you know, two words that were bad, you know, or, or naughty in some way put together. Like, I knew it was something meaningful. And that's a little different, right, than like, you know, the Commodores, right? <laughs> It's different than uh, you know the nitty gritty dirt band, right? Like you know, th- th- those aren't meanings that I that I that you can attach a lot of things to. The Sex Pistols, that was something that it, it came ready made with these sort of attachments that signified in some way, even to a child, right? And so for me, when I w- the moment came when I was spending time with my cousin, and uh, we were you know he was playing guitar. And he was like, you know, so what do you like? You know, what kind of music do you like? <clears throat> and I said, I don't know, even know why I said this, but I said, I like the Sex Pistols. That's my favorite band. And I think I said it just to upset him, right? And the reaction that I got was one of such upset <laughs> that I was like, wow, it got me a lot of attention, right? Like just sort of mentioning that I liked this thing and he had such a strong negative reaction against it you know like like that is garbage that's not music i don't know what you're thinking but like you know that's you know and and being the person that i was and and you know i think or the person i was becoming that was really gratifying to me in some way uh, and it was the first clue that i got you know it was one of those points in that narrative where i was like you know th- this is something that i could probably associate myself with because I, I liked the reaction that I got. It, it made me feel different. And it also kind of made me feel, it, it somehow was, was reaffirming things that I already felt about myself, right? That I was different, that I didn't really belong uh, in this place and doing these things. So uh, that was, you know, that was one moment. And there were others. And there were, and one thing that's very interesting to me and a, a sort of commonality that I noticed in these discussions is the reaction that my cousin had uh, later, you know, the, the idea that punk isn't music, right? And that you listen to it and it isn't music, which is very interesting to me because if you drop the needle on Nevermind the Bullocks right now, the sounds that are on it are by and large, they've entered the vocabulary of, of rock music, right? Like, you know, the drums sound like drums, the guitars sound like guitars, the bass sounds like bass, the songs are put together, they have a structure, they have form. The only thing they don't have is melody, right? At least not in the voice. And it's interesting to me how just that one element, right, a rejection of melody, can signify to people that what they're listening to is not music, right? That it's something else. And that sort of complete rejection, right, like a complete rejection of this thing, is, is I think what I identified with, right? And I had never heard this band, right? I'd, I had no idea what they sounded like. I have no idea what punk rock was, um, and yet I identified with it. And then later on, there were sort of a series, you know, when I came to understand more, where those associations and that self sort of image and idea of self uh, became even more 
more present to me. And, uh, you know, so that's a yet another long answer, but I guess that's what this is about. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. When you're talking about music identity, one of the things that is implicit in that is that music identity takes on some kind of broader meaning in terms of identity. So it's not, it's not just, I like punk rock music. I like the Sex Pistols. It's, there's something about what the Sex Pistols are doing. It's that reaction, right? Because, I mean, if you think about what is punk, and I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if you'll agree with me on this. It's like, if you're not confronting someone, if you're not upsetting them, it's mm-hmm. not really punk. It, it might be punk-ish, but you, you gotta, that's the essence of punk, whether we're talking about like suicide or the Sex Pistols or Iggy rubbing peanut butter all over himself. It's, this is meant to evoke a reaction. So when you choose that music identity, are you choosing the music and a style or is, is it just, you're really just choosing the music and the style can be either here nor there? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, and, and that's the kind of thing that that I'm interested in in discovering, right? Um, but it, like, certainly, there was a moment. Uh, and there's a couple of funny stories about that, right? Like, one of them is, um, and years later, I would meet this guy and become friends with him. But uh, when I eventually started, I actually got my got my hands on some punk music, and I didn't hear this on the radio. I didn't hear this on television. I went and you had to buy that. I mean, you bought it, right? Like I went and bought a vinyl disc and brought that vinyl disc. I brought two of them home. And one was Nevermind the Bollocks, the record that I had long wanted. And this was years after, because the story I'm telling you was in 76, 77, you know, I would have been like nine, right? Or, Or 10 or something. I was born in 68. So years later, you know, like I actually went out and, and, you know, so in that case, like to answer your question, clearly what I was identifying with was the the reaction that people had to the music, right? And it was, and I was associating myself with that, and I, and I felt reinforced by that somehow. And then later, or I felt like it articulated who I was somehow, or it was something I could identify with. Um, later, when I actually got the music, my reaction was very much the reaction that my cousin had had, right? Like I dropped the needle on Never Mind the Bollocks and I was like, this isn't music. I listened to it and I was like, I don't know why, but this, it really makes me very excited, but I don't really like it, right? And oftentimes like, you know, then I just, I kind of like, but I had already decided that I wanted to like it, right? (laughs) And I even like, there was the, my sort of involvement with punk really followed this pattern where like, you know, it involved kind of undoing the expectations that I had from music and being willing to allow those expectations to be undone. Right. Uh, Like what you expect from music is you expect the the essential elements, right. Of, Of rhythm and harmony and melody. And, and you expect there to be an aesthetic, I think of beauty, right. At least on some level, right? Even if even if the aesthetic is sort of hardness, there's still a a sense of of, of the beautiful that's in you know I don't know anything Metallica, Black Sabbath, um, in the Sex Pistols, right? Uh, but that aesthetic was harder to recognize. It was harder to see. So all of a sudden, and I mean this was really all of a sudden, I realized, well, wait a minute, what is it that I don't like about this, right? You know, and 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 I was like, what I don't like about it is that 
this isn't Led Zeppelin, right? When I listen to Led Zeppelin, I'm listening to something that I can't do and that I can't be. I can't sing like that. I can't play like that. I can't be rich like that. I can't look like that. But with this music, I instantly recognized at, at a very young age that I could be like that. I could sing like that. I could play like that. And that for me was hugely important. Like being able to, to you know, all, all at once and not separate it out. I became a fan and I became a creator at one time. And that I think is actually the, the particular, the particularity of punk rock, right? That, the power of it. And there's been a lot of writing on it that is very dumb about like, you know, how, you know, it kind of, you know, it's not about virtuosity and the people can't play their instruments and all that stuff. We could get into that at some other point, but I, I don't buy all that. I don't think that that's true. What I think it is essentially different is that it allows access to bases of performance that other kinds of music did not, right? And allows methods in to the creation part of that. You know, so for me, hearing that music and recognizing that, it, uh, I was starting to tell you a story about another record. The second record that I bought that day was uh, In God We Trust by the Dead Kennedys. And that happens to be a, it's a punk rock record that has, uh, you, you play it on, it's meant to be played on 45, but it's a, the size of a 33 RPM record. So <laughs> I listened to it on 33 and I didn't do that for like one or two times. I listened to it and I thought to myself, I like this a lot better than the Sex Pistols because it sounds a lot more like some of the music that I'd been listening to, right? Like, you know, if you slow Biafra's voice down and you slow that music down, it starts to make more sense, right? And, and that Biafra loves that story because it was like a long time before I even met another punk rocker who could enter my life and say, just walk up to the record thing and, and flick it, right? Like, you know, flick the speed thing. And then it was like, oh my God, that's what this is supposed to sound like, right? It was completely different. <laughs> so I don't know, like, you know, is it the, I think that that kind of goes toward answering that question. Like, is it the music or is it the style, right? It's like, I wasn't even really listening to the music, certainly not, not as it was, but I was, I was listening to what I thought it, it, it could be or should be. And I think that that might come more from the elements of style and from the elements of, of culture that, and, and the way the music signifies, you know, the things that, that, that surround it. Yeah, and it's interesting because when I think about you know the like the, the reason why I, I I'll, I'll talk to somebody like yourself for this podcast is because one of the first things they teach you as a clinical psychologist is you go where the affect is, you go mm -hmm. where the emotion is, right? When you're when you're talking to somebody, mm -hmm. and the reason is is that where the emotion is is most likely a, a more organic representation of how they're organized as a person, like what, who, what their self is, what their identity is in some right. ways. And so one of the things that I find very compelling is this idea that music identity starts with the fundal premise that if it moves you, it's important. Yes. You know, it's like that, that, uh, that scene in, uh, in the movie about James Brown, where he was saying like, you know, if, if you feel it, it's musical. I don't know if that's, that's not the exact right thing, but the thing that of what you're saying that I think is so compelling is that, and this is, I think you, you would, I think you would agree. 
it's not, I mean, because look, if anybody says, oh, uh, bad brains can't play their instruments, you know, Danzig can't sing, right? right. Everything about the you know, contemporary or, or more recent contemporary rock, whether it's Duff McKagan or whether it's you know, Dave Grohl or whether it's you know, Zach Della Roca, you know, like, like these are all people who dominated hard rock and, and came up from or flee you know, from the Chili Peppers. These, these are all people who came from hardcore. So it's like, don't, don't tell me that there's nothing, not you, but like people, don't tell me there's nothing musical happening, right? We right. know that there's something musical happening. But the thing that, that you're saying, which I think is, is, is the key, is that, but it allowed for the fact that it didn't have to be just a specific type of musical thing happening. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. are, you, are, you, are you open-minded enough to consider that there's another option? And I feel like that's such a big part of what you're describing as, as a musical identity. Definitely. I mean, absolutely. And it, you know, that, that's a good, good link, you know, sort of drawing those two ideas together and, you know, of sort of like virtuosity and like, and, and punk and expectations of music and identity. Right. But, you know, it's interesting, you know, there's also this element of uh, that narrative got so far, it's gotten so far the narrative that punk was not about that it didn't involve like being able to play or, and that that wasn't important, you know, and it's, and it's interesting, like another element is kind of a tolerance for people who are learning and a a willingness, like you say, to look for something else in the music besides virtuosity. Right. Which is almost like inherently forward thinking and liberal, right? It's like, uh, you know, the, like, like I'm not stuck on whether or not this is, uh, you know, this matches the, the, whatever my idea of what, of what skill is. I'm more interested in, in what the performers are trying to do or what they're trying to say. Uh, and it's not only that, like the other, the other aspect of that is, uh, that, that you had players who had very clear limitations, but even then, they were interested. Like, if you listen to the Germs record, Forming, that record is a, a wonderful case study in, in music because, you know, these are musicians who could not play. They couldn't. They didn't know how to, how to play those instruments any more than I did when I was 14 years old and holding this instrument, right? But they put that record together out of sheer determination, right? What sounds can we make, Right well, we can make these sounds, you know, let's get really good at making these sounds, you know? Uh, and in that way, they arrived at something that's completely original and stood out even from what their peers were doing, right? Because they couldn't be X, you know, they didn't have Billy Zoom in that band. They didn't have, you know, a, a good drummer. They didn't have any of that stuff. They had people who were learning and, you know, punk had a tolerance for that. And, uh, and not, o- not only a tolerance, but an atmosphere of encouragement to, that would allow that to happen, right? Like, you know, yeah, come on, you know, here, here's a stage. <laughs> you don't have to do this in your garage, in your basement. You can do it here and we'll watch and we'll do so un- uh, uncritically. Or even if it's critically, it's critical, but within a framework that somehow you can even identify with the person that's criticizing you, right? It's like, like we're, all, we're all somehow on the same side, like even if we come down differently about about whether or not my music is good right it's like it's very interesting to me yeah and it's and this thing that you're talking about because is you know i grew up more listening to zeppelin and whatever and when i was in my 30s i you know i got drunk one night and i was like you know i'm I'm gonna 
I want to try out for a band. I want to be in a band. Like I, I just, just one, you know, like I, I want to, and I, and I, cause I had seen someone in like a cover band at a bar. I was like, I want to, I want to sing like, I want to sing like a Pearl Jam cover. Like I, that, that's like the, for me, that's like the greatest thing that I could do. And I, I went on an audition and I can't sing. And I got so upset and I almost started crying that cause they were all good players and I wasn't, I started mm-hmm. screaming into the microphone. Right. I started screaming like I like it just like poured out of me. And so I left and I was like, oh, that, that didn't go very well. And so the guy calls me. He's like, listen, you know, I don't we were going to do like an alternative thing. But I think with your voice, it's like a, maybe like a hardcore or a thrash thing. And I remember and I remember saying to him, I was like, I don't I, this is so awkward. Like, I don't know what those words mean. Like, what like what are you like? What are you referring to? And then we hung out and he was playing the stuff. And I was like, oh, oh. I was like, why, why is it that this world that I'm totally unfamiliar with, why are the singers seeming to be expressing things the way that I do? It was very mm-hmm. weird. And what I noticed when we started playing, the world completely split and it went into two different groups. And it was the people who were like, hey, you know, this, this is either, either they liked it because they just liked what it was or they thought, hey, I, it's not my thing, but I'm so psyched for you that you're doing something different. Right. Good yeah. for you, man. And then people who were just at, like, they were like, this is, this is inappropriate. It's disturbed. You're like mm-hmm. screaming in a, in a public place and you're, you're writhing around on the floor. <laughs> and it's like, and it was, it was right when that happened. It was before I had, I had like really learned about hardcore and, and metal and a lot of those, those scenes where I realized like that open-mindedness was that thing that I had been looking for mm-hmm. my whole life that I, that I didn't, I didn't ever really have is like, I, all of a sudden I realized like these people who I had had nothing to do with for whatever reason for my life were all of a sudden like the ones who were like, yeah, cool. And it's, it's amazing to me how that little pivot from just being curious about something rather than critical right. can yeah. change like someone's entire life. And I feel like that's what you're talking about with. It is. And hardcore. that's also how, it, it's also how it's a narrative too, right? Like, like it's a series of points, right. You know, which, which kind of, a story that you tell about yourself and that you're able to tell about yourself. And that often you don't articulate, you don't say to yourself or even to anyone else, right? It's just, you know, but, but that doesn't mean it's not a story that's going on in your head, right? That, you know, sort of uncovering what that is and, 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 and how music figures into it. And it really often does. I mean, you know, because people identify with music so strongly that they'll literally be like, you know, this is what I am right? This is who I am. This speaks utterly to me, you know, like, uh, so, and the story about how they get there is what, what I'm very interested in. And, and now let's talk about that because you've, you've talked actually, if what I remember correctly in your Ted talks about the link between musical identity and regional identity. And, and particularly you were talking about coming from Richmond. So I'm kind of curious about the connection there. Well, it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, in concerning punk, and I talked about this a little in my dissertation, like one of the things that I noticed was that there was a sort of a change, right? I do think that like, you know, being like where you're from sort of making up that music has kind of a similar, it really, they, they're very linked, right? Like, I mean, first of all, music and region are oftentimes linked, right? Like, like, you know, it sounds, you know, music sounds different in different places. Uh, it's used differently in different places uh, or different regions, you know, and, and that's, and it's interestingly enough, like, you know, that's not only, it's, it's vernacular music, right? It's not only sort of music that, 
that is what what people would call folk music or indigenous music like you know it's how people are using pop music using popular music and how they're thinking of it and creating it so region already figures into that right but it it bears some similarities to the way people identify with music where they think you know being you know, this music says something, right? Like, you know, I mean, let's take country music as an example that's not punk, right? You know, somehow you identify with the utter abjection of George Jones, right? (laughs) You identify with this kind of state and you identify the kind of values that, that they're putting out, right? And oftentimes, like when people think about their region, it is things like values that, and ways of being, that they identify with, you know, so, so people are used to sort of framing their identity, I think, through where they're from and also to, to where they listen to, right? So like, or what they listen to. So it's like, you know, what, what, how can you, you know, how are those two things related? And, you know, the TED Talk was actually difficult, right? It was, it was hard because they, they cut my time in half. They gave me, I'm used to, I was used to writing and thinking in terms of 18 minutes you know, which is sort of the format that you use in, in a lot of academic disciplines for, for giving talks. And they cut it in half, and they did that the day before I was supposed to give the talk. And, you know, it's, it's like, like Mark Twain said, if you'd have given me more time, I'd have written you a shorter letter, right? <laughs> so it, it was very much like that. It's like, well, well, I don't have time to make this shorter, you know. So, so just, a lot of it got cut out, and it wound it up, to me anyway, it, I didn't get to explain this stuff fully. So I'm really thoroughly enjoying uh, being able to discuss it right now. But um, those, uh, that connection and the, you know, I wanted to look at Guar sort of as a, as a case in point and articulating the identity of, or, you know, the way that, that, that being from Richmond sort of reflected on the band and, and the way that the band reflected what being from Richmond was about or like. One of the interesting things that I noticed was that if you're talking about punk from Richmond, at the time that we formed Guar, being from Richmond didn't feel like a very cool thing, right? It felt like kind of a, it wasn't something that we said, well, you know what? We're from Richmond, Virginia, you know, very much. Uh, and that's very unlike DC where it was like, you know, we're from Washington, DC. It's great. Right. It's like, you know, we were from Richmond and it didn't feel, it, it felt burdened, even though I think people weren't paying attention to it so much back then, uh, it, burdened by history burdened by by economics and it felt like something that we were trying to escape and i think that that kind of bears on you know why it would be attractive for guar to sort of deny like you know we're not from richmond like we don't gather you know you know uh, we uh we're from outer space right or we're from antarctica we're from both of those places out of this world really and it oftentimes tried to sort of like part of the attraction of it was that it that it seemed not to have any borders, right? That that you could identify with somebody who was listening to this music that was from England or from uh, I don't know, I mean Zimbabwe, wherever, right? Like you could you could find people that were listening to and that appreciated music. You could find bands from those places and recognize sounds, you know, that were you know things that that you liked and felt connected to. So punk very much, I think became about being sort of citizens of the world, right? Uh, or, or at least of this sort of, this sort of broader sense of place that was, or, or sense of connection that, that wasn't bounded by geographic area. And, but for us, if later on, what I noticed was that in Richmond, as times changed, bands started to 
get, 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 gather or, or form their identity around being from Richmond. And a good case in point is the, is the band of Vale, right? Who are not from Richmond, but much of their songs have this kind of focus on, 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 on the experience of living in Richmond. And they managed to sort of turn Richmond into a sort of a destination point. Uh, and later bands have done that as well, right? They, they've, they've incorporated that identity into that sense of place into what they do, right? It becomes part of their art. Even my my work in, in Kipo, which is a band I did sort of at the same time and then after Guar, is very much like that, right? I, I was very much interested in expressing things about 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 Virginia and about Central Virginia, less so about Richmond than like, you know, uh, just being from a sort of like rural slash suburban place in Virginia and like, and, and the way that that affected you know, the, the stories that you tell from that viewpoint, right? I think it's, you know, from, from where I'm sitting, you know, because I think you, you and I both grew up around the same time, you know, we grew up in a world where it wasn't okay to be from a Richmond. It wasn't okay to be from an Athens. It wasn't okay right. to be from a Seattle. And, and these, are, these are concepts now that, that, are, that are absurd, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I think that a big part of it was, it's not just the permissiveness, you know, like, oh, we're a citizen of the world. It's the, we're not just going to be accepting that there's a Richmond, like, we're going to celebrate that there's a Richmond scene. Yeah. You know, yeah. like we, like we, right. we want, like, it's, it's better for everybody in hardcore if there's a Richmond scene, you know, yeah. like if we're, and, and, yeah. and that's, right. that felt, I, I, and I don't know if you, you know, I feel like a lot of what we're seeing culturally now, whether it's, it's hip hop, whether it's hardcore, whether it's metal was kind of forged in that fire where just that idea of saying like, look, like, don't be, don't be embarrassed. Not only should you not be embarrassed of where you are, you should, you should really be proud if, you know, if it's a place that, that mattered to you. Um, and that feels like a very, very different mentality, you know, for yeah, a person yeah. in terms of identity. Yeah. And those are two things. I mean, like we're talking about kind of different impulses, but I think they're actually really related, right? It's like, the idea that that being a part of punk and and being from Richmond, it did carry a kind of stigma. But we were also very proud of what we were building in that city, right? We were proud of what we were doing by creating this punk rock scene, you know. So so that in that way, like you know, it's not like we were ashamed of it. Um, it's just that we didn't sort of fold like the historical, you know, like whatever, like like the meanings that sort of Richmond carried as the capital of the Confederacy that it carried. We didn't really fold those things into into our expression, right? I think that they made their way into our expression kind of organically because we were people creating art in a place that that was burdened by this history and by this sort of specific the specifics of econ- economics and and culture in a moment in time. You know, just to to pivot a little bit to your actually being in Guar, like you know, a lot of people will. They listen to music, and I, I always say to people, "Look, anything that you do, whether it's you know, if you buy a record, if you you know, tell a friend about a band that you're into, all the way you know, starting a fanzine, all the way up to the people who play the music, I think people need to understand like how important every single person is in something like a hardcore, in like a metal scene." But none, nonetheless, and, and it is important to find like, okay, so where's everyone's place in these broader cultures? But that moment where you decide, I'm not just going to listen, I'm going to try to participate. 
right? Especially in something like Guar, where you know I'm I'm talking about the things that I went through. I mean, Guar is a whole nother level of you know of outrage toward you know in terms of how people sometimes respond. So how did you decide? Hey, listen, this is what I want to do. You know what I mean? I want to participate in this way in this world. You mean uh, of music or of Guar? I, I think, well, let's maybe first with music and then ultimately Guar. With music, I mean, that was another sort of like, you know, there you go. It's more of that narrative, right? Like uh, the conversion narrative. I mentioned sort of recognizing that it was something that I could do, right? And then, then very much, and this is also a lot of times the story of musicians, not only in punk rock, but in, in, in popular music, a lot of times, like, you know, they, uh, you, you hear this story a lot, even where, you know, it's like, well, well, there's a high school talent show, right? Or there's a, some kind of talent show. And so in my case, like it was all sort of wed together. It's like, you know, I had just sort of been discovering what it meant to be who I was, right? What it meant to be a punk rocker. And one of the things that it looked like what it meant was that it meant playing music, right? It meant participating in this. And by and large, I think it was because like, I wasn't seen, like I, there weren't, people that were punks who weren't playing music that I was seeing, right? It's like, you know, there weren't any punks in Hopewell, Virginia. There weren't any punks in Chesterfield, Virginia. There was me and like some, a few of my, of, of my friends that I had met. So, you know, it made sense to sort of become a producer, you know, and, and also like we could tell, you know, well, look, we can stick this together. And so we had already been talking about, had one of those theoretical talk about it bands, right? And then like an opportunity came and I don't know why, but I just felt like, look, I need to, we need to do this for real. Like we need to put it together for real. And so, uh, you know, I, I pushed, um, I found a kid who played heavy metal, but was a, a nice open-minded guy. Um, and he was a guitar player. who was by far the most skilled musician that we had. And I recognized quickly that, you know, I could probably play bass and that I'd probably be better suited at that we found a drummer, you know, a kid who had drums in his house and we all lived in a really close proximity to each other. So we just started playing and in a garage as, as bands do. And we prepared for this one show. And then, you know, we did that show. <laughs> that band did a number of talent shows over the years. And eventually we started winning them. Right. Which was interesting. It was a band that sort of mixed like punk and heavy metal. And, and we had our, our set that we could do when we played at a party out in the country where we knew that we were going to have a bunch of rednecks there and we would just play, play Paranoid by Black Sabbath <laughs> and then jam on some bullshit, like something that sounded like a Skinnered riff, right? Like they're happy, you know, but what we wanted to do was, was play punk rock. And so eventually we, we got the courage to make the, the half hour drive from uh, Hopewell, Virginia to Richmond. And when we did, I remember the first time that we went to a punk show, we sat outside, it was raining and it was a GBH show. And they used to have a rock line that you could call and you would call the phone and, and it'd be like, you know, this is Domino's Doghouse. Here's the rock line. All the shows are going on. And, you know, I would call that thing. I'd call it like four times a day because I knew that there was this world that I wanted to get into. Right. But that I was that half hour felt like a very long trip. Right. And, it, you know, so when we actually made, it was like a series of little, little steps where we did the talent show, 
we did another talent show. We decided, well, maybe we'll keep it together. But then it wasn't until we actually went to Richmond and saw other kids that were into this thing. And then we were like, okay, well, this is huge. And I remember we didn't get out of the car. It was raining. And we stayed in the car. Our trip to Richmond was that we watched the people in line for the show. <laughs> and, and we were very intimidated. We weren't about to get out, you know, because we, were, we felt like, you know, we knew we wanted to be a part of it, but we didn't feel like we were. And then eventually we did make the courage, have the courage to go. I think it was a matinee show. It was during the day and it felt a little safer because Richmond also had a very bad sort of reputation for crime at that time too. Our, our parents would never, I mean, I'm sure that we lied to them. I, I, they never would have conceded to allow us to go to Richmond. So, you know, when, when, when we were there watching this, this band, like when we actually went there during the day and we met people, we told them, well, you know, we have a band, you know, like we, we play. And so that was really my into that because they were all very encouraging and they were like, well, yeah, we got bands too. Like, you know, let's, you, you want your band to be on a show and then it's really cool because you're from Hopewell and that's weird. Like, you know, being from Richmond was weird in New York. Being from Hopewell was weird in Richmond. Right. right. And that, and that notion of, <laughs> yeah, that, that idea that weird is good. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just sure. such a, you know, a weird, yeah. weird is like, yeah, like I, I, like I'm looking for weird in my life. Yeah. Yeah. What, exactly. What does, what does Hopewell sound like? Right. I mean, it's gotta be because everybody, it also had, I mean, it's the kind of place where they call it the New Jersey that they've called it in the times, like, like uh, the Newark of the South or, or something like that. It, or no, the Trenton of the South. That's what they called it because it was a city that is, is really built on industry and in particular sort of stinky industry. And it's known throughout the state as being a place that smells bad. So, you know, we were carrying that, that stigma with us, but again, we were attaching to it and like letting it, you know, yeah, we're the band that's from Hopewell. Right. And, uh, and they would put it on the flyers, right. From Hopewell, Virginia. Can you believe it? Right. And, you know, so that, that's how I got into it. And, the band started playing a lot and we got to be pretty good. People liked it. Eventually through that, I developed a reputation as a musician. And, and so when Guar was putting together a touring band, right, it had already been sort of an art project band with a rotating crew of members. And then they, they tried to sort of solidify the lineup. I was one of the people that auditioned for it. Largely, I think that I got, uh, I got the part because I was a heavy set, you know, I was a, a fat kid really. And, and, you know, they wanted somebody that could wear that suit that looked a certain way. And, uh, or although there wasn't an existing suit, like they, their beefcake didn't exist. That was my name as a punk rocker was beefcake. That's, I had made that sort of fake punk name. And so when I joined Guar, they, we built this character based around like, you know, just whatever sort of costume pieces they had. Uh, but that's how I that's how I joined the band. This is awesome stuff. Let me take a moment. You know, just anything else on music identity that you feel like we didn't hit on. That, I think that you did you a really of- good. I think you did a very good job with talking about that. You know, and and you know, I, I think I think it's 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 great. I mean, you know, like music identity and regional identity, right? Those two things. Uh, I mean, I could talk more about regional identity. And about how, uh, you know, I mean, in the TED Talk, what I tried to do is I tried to sort of 
like uh, just dem- demonstrate sort of like or mention some of the ways that like Gorgeous registered these issues, right? That and at the time that felt like sort of enough, right? Like it felt like it really doesn't really feel that way anymore. But at the time, you know, sort of just acknowledging that things were going on, trying to position yourself somehow in all of these sort, you know, like like bringing on the redneck from hell, right? Like I mean, we probably wouldn't have had that character if we weren't this band from Richmond, Virginia, that was pretending to be from outer space, right? You know, and we, you know, so like Guar in particular would articulate um, the kinds of authority figures that we would encounter and then just sort of take those, take those people on. And that's, that's really how that, you know, so, I mean, that's the only aspect of it that I would kind of wanted to put a bow on was that like, you know, Guar's relationship to Richmond and also in the in the TED talk, I talk about how like just the sort of the historical moment allowed Guar to exist, and that that moment was not unfraught, right? It was it's, it it was fraught with the, all of the problems of race and that exist in Richmond, Virginia, and that have existed for a long time. You know, I mean, the whole fact that we were able to to get together and play music, the whole fact that even the punk scene itself, right, like being built in, largely in these sort of abandoned spaces right you know places that were cheap and they were cheap for a reason you know they were cheap because the cities were taking a major nosedive during that time period and the, that nosedive was at least part in full partly fueled by by racism right by by these sort of policies of, of urban uh, development that had resulted in urban decay and largely it was you know whites moving out and abandoning you know leaving no tax base in the inner cities and yet locating in inner cities all of the sort of projects, you know, or, or like, you know, low-income housing. So you had African-Americans sort of stuck in these really sort of financially doomed areas, right? And in the cracks of that, right, you know, we, the city was ours because, no, like, the other people who had money didn't, didn't want it, right? Like, you know, they're, they're, you know so you could, you could rent a space for a couple hundred bucks a month where you could do something and, and that, that wouldn't exist. And, and I know that I'm right about that because I have lived in a place where that didn't exist and you can just feel it. Right. Like, I mean, even right now, like I live in Sarasota, Florida, there's no space, there's no room. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no openings. There's no place that I can go and, and, and be like, Oh, you know, this is my space where I do art. It's like, you, you can't do that here. But you could in Richmond, and, and it has that specific association. That's why, right? Um, so, you know, I mean, it was kind of a stretch, but I didn't, and I didn't get to explain it fully in the TED Talk, but, but it felt important to me to point that out, right? That Guar, not only sort of creatively through the, through the people that we killed and, and the, the sort of symbolism that we, would, that we would use, right? But also just through the fact of the existence of the band right? Like that there was a kind of historic specificity and a regional specificity that allowed it to exist at all. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because the thing that I gravitated towards about the the concept of music identity, again, is this idea that, you know, you can have an identity that's of your choosing. You know, I mean, a, a lot of people, unfortunately, historically have not been able to choose the music they could listen to, which, mm-hmm. which is what made, you know, going out to a, a, a store and, and buying a punk record or a metal record or a hip hop record, you know, maybe something that your parents didn't like or nobody in your school listened to that made it all, all the, the more dangerous and cool to an extent. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I think from is that 
I feel like you're saying is like you're saying, it's like, yes, we're from Richmond, but we can have an identity that's of Richmond, but separate from the current standard Richmond identity, Yeah, you know? So, and that's, and I think that like, whether it was, you know, even, even thinking about, you know, back black flag, it's like, yes, we're from California, but we're not from the California that you think of when you're watching, you know, whatever show you're watching that's about California on TV, this is a different California that maybe you're not so familiar with. And again, that idea of how those identities go together, it all speaks to that thing of like, listen, like I can, I don't, I don't have to, I don't know if I don't have to be embarrassed or I don't have to be ashamed of, or I, I don't, I can just be, and I can figure this out. Like there's a space to figure this out. Um, right. And that's why I think that that music identity thing is so, is so important because I feel like it is an avenue for people to be able to consider other parts of their identity that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise. You know, if they just yeah. think of it as like, oh, this is just, this is just what I listen to. You know, I, I just listen to what's on the radio and that's fine yeah. if that's, if that's what you do. But if you want to go a little bit deeper, there's something there for you. It might be cool for you. And, and the, you're right. There's also like, and I feel like I, we shouldn't even like, <laughs> we have to talk, I feel like about like what, what Richmond and identity means right now. Right. Like, you know, because at the time, I mean, we, in the world that we grew up in, the idea that those monuments would come down, the idea that it didn't even seem like a possibility, right? Like that stone was stone. They were built and they were permanent. And it wasn't something that you could move. And, you know, it, and we lived under it and we knew what it meant. We knew that, that, that when you said that you were from Richmond, that people in their mind they did all the things that they do with people from the South, right? Which is, you know, well, they, they might be stupid. They might, I mean, I remember being in Los Angeles at the Grammys and, and telling a woman that I was from Richmond. It was like, it, it was some person with the press and she was like, no, you're not. You're not from Richmond. Come on. Like, where are you really from? And I'm like, well, we're from Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> like, you know, and, and I'll never forget what she said was nobody is from Richmond, Virginia. Are you, are you a nobody? Right. You know, and it's, that's what I felt like sort of in the moment. Right. It was like, yeah, so Richmond carried these kind of connotations. And, and like I said, Gore was both like, and like you mentioned, yes, Gore was trying to escape them, but also Gore was reflecting them. And at the same time, now it's interesting to me how much that, that meaning has changed. Right. There's been, just a shift in what it means to be from Richmond, Virginia. And a lot of these problems that were institutional problems that were buried and that like, you know, if you were talking about them at all, if you were talking about race, if you were talking about class or health or anything in Richmond, Virginia, you know, then you were, that that was subversive talk, right? And now a lot of those things that were under the surface have really been brought out and they're laid bare by this, these, the issues that people are talking about in the Black Lives Matter movement and that people are uh, marching about, you know, uh, and then also like, you know, there's, there's the sort of the downside, which is the violence on the, on the part of the police, the violence on the, on the part of, uh, on, on, pro, you know, I mean, not protesters, but actual people that are doing, doing harm. I mean, there is, it looks like there has been a little bit of that in Richmond and certainly that's, that's no good either. But, sir, but what, what strikes me though, is that, the monuments mean something different now. Uh, and that's actually one thing that like, you know, it's a historical moment that I'll never forget. Looking at that, the Lee monument with that, if you come from Richmond, Virginia, 
and you look at that monument and you look at, at uh, you know, you look at the, the Jeff Davis monument and, and Davis isn't there anymore and the spray paint that's all over it or the Lee monument is, is a, a great example. It's come to mean something else. And, or maybe it's come to the meaning that it always had is more visible, you know, and it's been made more visible by people actually being able to, to talk about it and to put their mark on it. And, and it's, and to me, you know, and, and look, music obviously isn't the only place where this happens. There's been, you know, obviously civil rights leaders for forever, and there's been people in different forms of art. But, you know, when I see what's happening now, it, it, to me, it, it does start with whether it was hip hop or there's metal, whether it was hardcore, just the idea that like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm looking at this, I'm looking at this thing and I'm having a different feeling about it than maybe it seems like some of the other people around me mm-hmm. are having. And that's okay. There's, there's someone out, whether it's, you know, Guar or there's, you know, another band out there, or there's an activist out there who says that, that the thing that I'm feeling, this discomfort that I'm feeling, you know, that that's okay to feel that way. And, and, and look, not only is it okay, but there may be other people who agree with you. And not only are there maybe people who agree with you, but, you know, hey, you could do something about it. And that, yeah. you know, that model, I think, I think, you know, whether, you know, it's our activists or our politicians who step up, you know, our artists, I do think that it starts with that concept of like, hey, it's, you know, it's okay to feel something differently about what you're, what you're spoon fed. And I think that that's why, again, this, this music identity concept feels so important to me because it's, 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 it's kind of stating it in a little bit of a different way. It's putting a name on it that I think will, as people grab onto that idea, I think will help people say, hey, you know, there's a lot that you can do when you, when you open your mind. And that's, yeah. that to me, is, is very yeah. cool. Music's always had that, that power, too. I mean, it's always been something that, I mean, and music and race, right? There's a whole bunch, a lot of really interesting things about that. And music and racial identity and music and, and uh, you know, like, like the relationship. I mean, there's, it's just a lot to talk about, man. But, like, music has always had this sort of, you know, positioning yourself in relation to music can feel like a very political thing to do. Listen, Michael Bishop, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So there you have it. Michael Bishop of Guar talking about how musical identity is fundamental to our understanding of ourselves. I thought it was so interesting how he explained the way musical identity can be part of our broader self-concept sometimes directly connected to the region where we grew up or currently live. One of the great things about underground music scenes like hardcore punk, heavy metal, or hip-hop is that they help decentralize culture. What I mean is, there used to be an unfortunate assumption that the main places that mattered for culture in America were either New York or Los Angeles. And if we didn't live in either of those places, we'd think, oh, nothing happens here. I have to go elsewhere to find purpose, to find identity. But underground music scenes allowed lesser-known places to explore and develop their own identity. And those scenes could provide a purpose in and of themselves, as well as because of their connection to a bigger culture. Now, one takeaway that we can have from listening to Michael is to explore our own musical identity. Take the time to discover the music we love, learn about the artists that make the music, where they came from, and whether or not they're part of a bigger culture. We can then slowly discover our musical identity and how we want to express it as part of our lives. 
And look, whether it's just listening to the music or supporting our favorite bands by buying their records, merchandise, or seeing their shows, or even starting our own band, exploring our musical identity can be a valuable vehicle for exploring and developing who we are and how we want to live our life. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for producing this podcast, and my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make change in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.